Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 to 9 is our reading. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and in them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. That's our text, that's our reading. So again, um, just by, by a very brief way of introduction, remember that this book is being written to Christians with a Jewish background. Christians who had been saved from the externals of that background, of that Jewish religion, which were very strong and integrated into their (coughs) social life in every way. And so, for example, their diet, um, the places they would go, their relationships, how they structured their day, it was all determined by their religion. And they've come away from that to Christ. And the purpose of this book, as we've said each time that we've looked at it, is to tell them that what they have come to in the Lord Jesus Christ was not as externally appealing, far from. In fact, there was nothing to appeal externally to the senses, to what they could see or hear or touch or anything like that. It wasn't that they were visiting big buildings or that there were priests with special uh, clothes on and taking literal offerings and offering sacrifices. They've come to the Lord Jesus Christ who isn't even here. He's back in heaven. And so they are by faith trusting in someone who they can't see. So there's nothing tangible and physical about that. And what this writer is saying is that yet in Christ, the one who's not here, the one who's in glory, they have the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament things. And they have that which is greater than all these Old Testament things. Whether it's the characters that they thought so highly of, the patriarchs, Moses, Elijah, Joshua, or whether it was the building, or whether it was the system of sacrifice, whether it was the blood that was shed and applied, that was so precious to the Jews, Christ and his sacrifice, far greater than all they left behind. And he's encouraging them not to slip back towards the things that they have left behind, but to stay strong, committed to Christ, and to enjoy and experience all that he is and has provided for them. Now, one thing that we've then moved into as we come to chapter 5 is that in the last section of chapter 4, we were introduced to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Christian's great high priest. And that was a very familiar terminology to these Jewish people, at least high priest was. But one thing they would not have been familiar with 
was associating the one that they were waiting for, Messiah, the Saviour, the, the long promised for Saviour, they would not readily have associated him with being their high priest. For these two offices of the man who sat on the throne as king and the man who entered into the temple representing the nation of Israel as high priest were always separate in their nation. And they could not be brought together. They must not be brought together in the old days. But now the Messiah is introduced as the high priest. And can the Lord Jesus Christ actually be a priest anyway? Because he hadn't come from the family of Aaron, the priestly family of the Old Testament. He didn't even, when he was here, have access into the temple in Jerusalem to officiate as a priest. He never did. So how is he a priest now if he wasn't here, a priest here upon earth? If he didn't wear these clothes and he wasn't of the special family and he wasn't actually allowed into the temple precincts. In fact, he performed no priestly duties in terms of that religion when he was here. So now he's not here. The writer says, he's your high priest. How can that be? Well, he's now going to expand on that. To show that the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified to function as a priest and as our high priest and as our great high priest. That's what this section is all about. And as he explains that, he tells us some very important things about the Lord Jesus in this little section. It's in this context, but it's very important about him. So let's just look at this nice and quickly. So verses 1 down to verse 4, he tells us that there were certain things necessary for a person to function as a priest within that system of Judaism. So look at these very briefly. Verse number one, notice this, for every high priest, number one, taken from among men is ordained for men. That's the first thing, taken from among men. Basic point, but the high priest had to be a man who served on behalf of other men. All the Old Testament priests were men, and they served on behalf of other men. So, for example, Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, and I'm using that word men in its generic term. In Exodus chapter 28, and verse 1, it says, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron. Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So God says, I want you to choose men. Now it's very basic, but he didn't choose angels. There wasn't a special angel came down from heaven to do this. And there weren't animals, they couldn't do it either. It had to be a man who was subject to the same experiences of those he represented. It had to be a man who had actually gone through the things that they would then come and, and, and bring sacrifice and offering for. The temptations and stresses and strains of life. So notice he had to be taken from among men. That's the first thing. Second thing is he would offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now the word gift refers to gifts in general. The word sacrifices refers to blood sacrifices. And these were for individual sins that people had committed. It required a priest, a high priest, to represent these individuals before God. No one could just do it off their own back. 
So, for example, King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, took it upon himself to offer sacrifices. God removes the kingdom from him. He's no longer going to be king. Second Chronicles chapter 26, the more famous one, King Uzziah, he took incense and offered it before the Lord, and God struck him down with leprosy. See, it was absolutely inappropriate. They hadn't been brought into that role by God. And so therefore, they were designated, these priests and the high priests, by God to make offerings for sins, gifts for sins. It was their task, and men had to do it on behalf of men. Now notice verse number two, what else had to be characteristic of these priests? They had to have compassion. Now, I'm going to get technical here, okay? So I know it's Friday night and it's warm, but here's a little technical point in terms of language. Now, I don't know if you like language and if you find it interesting, but here is some interesting aspects of words here. Now, what do I mean? Well, the Greek word translated compassion here is not the normal word that we would associate with compassion so for example in chapter 4 and verse 15 we had this um, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin and in that verse you have this idea this word that's been used to have a fellow feeling for someone now you get that idea so um you feel we actually use the expression we feel for you and you have a feeling of having gone through something and therefore you can identify with that individual and feel how they are feeling you can have compassion now that's made up of a compound word, two words stuck together if you like. So you get your main word and then you have this other compound bit stuck in the front. So the compound bit is sun, S-U-N, and the other bit, uh, well, it's the word patheo, P-A-T-H-E-O. So we get pathos, words like that from it. So that is in chapter 4 verse 15. It's a different word that's used here. The word that's used here comes from the root word to measure something. And you have this idea here of not so much the emphasis being on being able to be compassionate, to be able to feel what someone else is feeling, but the emphasis here is on measured compassion. Measured compassion. One writer says this, compassion here speaks of a state of feeling towards the ignorant and erring, which is neither too severe nor too intolerant. Or tolerant, sorry. Not one extreme or the other, but measured. So the priest had to be able to have a measured compassion towards those who were sinning. And he was able to do that the idea was just this, if he didn't have that compassion, he could become really judgmental or he could just be totally liberal. There had to be that measured approach. Now, what will help him do that is his own infirmities, because in verse number two, it says this, for he, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmities. So here's a priest and he is representing, ministering to individuals in relation to their sin before God. And, and how does he feel about that individual? Well, 
He has a measured compassion because he is fully aware of his own inadequacy. He's fully aware of his own failings, his infirmities. And this idea of being compassed about means that they are lying all around him. So everywhere he looks, he sees his own infirmities. That should therefore make him have a measured compassion towards those that he represents. So no extremes. No extreme judgmental attitude. No extreme liberal attitude. But that measured attitude with self-awareness of his own failings. So he had to be a man for that to be true. <coughs> and then in verse number three, notice this, and by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sin. He was a fellow sinner, actually, and he stood as a mediator, but he had to go and offer for his own sins before he could represent the people. Uh, Hebrews 7, verse 27 says this, Who needeth not daily, the Lord Jesus needs not daily, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Now, what is being said here is quite simple. The priest would have an awareness of his own weakness, his own infirmity. And therefore, he could deal appropriately with appropriate gentleness and appropriate compassion to those who were ignorant and misguided. Now, I won't stay there, but we could, because it's interesting the ignorant and misguided, not the deliberate acts of sin, I review. But notice verse 4, just quickly. So here's another point. No man takes this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So you can't vote yourself into this role. God calls you to this role. In fact, the call in the Old Testament was only given to certain individuals to be part of this priesthood. Uh, I've read Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1. You get it in Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 2. You get First Chronicles chapter 23 and verse 13. And they're all really saying the same thing. Take Aaron. Take Aaron and his sons. That's who I've chosen. That's who I've called to, to fulfill this function of priesthood. So bring that all together. The writer is just commenting in the Old Testament. And they say that's the sort of qualifications that were required for someone to function as a priest. Now, does Jesus Christ have these qualifications? So this is the bit that is interesting about the Lord Jesus beyond even this immediate context. Well, verse 5, he begins to explain this, down to verse number 9. So in verse number 5, he says, so also Christ. So he's got four verses about Aaron and his sons and the Old Testament priests and their qualifications that fitted them to do this role for God. Now he bridges that over to the Lord Jesus. So he's established all of that information over here. Now he puts a bridge. I've heard about bridges between Scotland and Ireland uh, this week. Anyway, he puts a bridge right across and he says, so also Christ. Actually, he says, so also the Christ. Is there a definite article there, Jeremy? Jeremy knows about definite articles. Yes, there is. Thank you. So there's a definite article there which means the. So he's speaking about the Christ. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Well, first of all, he was called of God. So he glorified not himself to be made a high priest. And he's going to quote two Old Testament scriptures here to establish that. Psalm 2 verse 7, the Christ 
The one who is the son of God, who is in a unique relationship with the father, did not glorify himself, shove himself forward, exalt himself into this role to bring more glory to himself. It was actually given to him. So he does not ascribe praise to himself. He does not esteem himself higher or anything like that. But rather, Psalm 2 verse 7 says, He that said, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. So two quotations from the psalm. And what is the point of the quotations is just this. The same God that said, You are my son, is the same God that said, You are a priest. Two things said by God to the Son of God. And not just any old priest, but rather a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which he takes up later on into chapter 7, and we'll not touch on that just now. So what about his sympathy and compassion? So he's called of God, then come to verse 7. For in verse number 7, we have something of these delightful expressions that speak about the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who in the days of his flesh? So that's referring to the days spent when he was here upon earth. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So if, remember, if a priest is going to be able to represent other people, he needs to have some idea of what they go through in life so that he can have an appropriate measured compassion upon them. Now, the Lord Jesus never sinned. But that does not take away from the fact that he experienced the ups and downs of life, the pressures and strains, the highs and lows, the disappointments. He experienced all of that just as any other individual. He lived as a true man here upon earth. And so he did cry with strong cries. And that really means an anguished, audible, loud cry. So the Lord Jesus, and I think this is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, at least we know that's what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, and if it is in the Garden of Gethsemane this is particularly referring to, the Lord Jesus is lying in the ground under extreme pressure. Have you known anything of pressure? I'm almost certain everyone in this room has known something of pressure. Have you felt sometimes that you just can't cope with the pressure, that you, you, you are under a weight, it's just like something crushing you down? The Lord Jesus is lying on the ground in Gethsemane and he is crying out with a strong cry of anguish because it's as if he's being crushed by the pressure of what he's thinking about and anticipating that lies ahead of Golgotha. Strong crying and he's shedding tears. He knows what it's like to stand beside the grave of his friend with all his knowledge, with all his power, knowing fine well that he was going to raise him from the dead but still, the Bible tells us that he wept when he stood at the grave of his friend. His cheeks were stained by tears. Strong crying. And tears 
feeling crushing weight. Under so much pressure that the sweat was pouring off him. Some think it was actual blood, I don't, but it was sweat as if it were. So the sweat appeared like great drops of blood falling to the ground at that consistency and frequency. And it was, his whole body was under so much pressure that we would just say the sweat was pouring off him. Literally dripping onto the ground, pouring off him. Now, if I'm wrong and others are right, and he was in such a physical extremity that blood did come out of him in that way, and there are records of that happening to people, whichever one it is, it shows that he was under intense pressure. His heart on occasion was broken, the Bible tells us. Broken hearted. Because when Satan tempted him, unlike us who capitulate pretty quickly, so the Lord Jesus, the the Satan hardly needs to turn the screw, doesn't really need to pump up the pressure on us, usually just dangle a wee thing in front of us and we're off. The Lord Jesus Christ experienced the absolute, unrestricted, full blast of satanic attention. Satan held absolutely nothing back and he went forward with everything he had and still he didn't sin but he felt the pain and anguish and pressure of that temptation it was real some people say well it could only be real if he could sin that's not true that's to misunderstand the pressure of experiencing the temptation although you cannot and do not positively respond to it, you still feel the weight and pressure of it bearing down on you as no one else had done and then it says this that not only did he not only did he experience tears and strong crying but notice this unto him that was able to save him from death Now, again, remember this, that he wasn't praying to God, please don't let me die. We know that because the Lord Jesus elsewhere said, for this hour came I into the world. And he moved steadily, steadfastly toward that point of death. He would not be turned back to the right or to the left. The idea here is not to be saved from experiencing death, but to be saved out from death. This is resurrection. The Messiah is praying to be saved out from within death, out from the power of death. The language would seem to indicate that. I read this, which I had never, ever thought, but I read this and it was interesting. Could it be that our Lord uttered the entire 22nd Samuel hanging on the cross? I don't know. Certainly not recorded. Part of it is. Do we have all that he said on the cross? We know he didn't say a lot because led as a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. But Psalm 22 is interesting because the psalmist gives a full description of what Christ experienced. 
verse 1 to 13, speak of these sufferings, those due to his abandonment by God, verse 1 to 6, those due to the fact that mankind spurned him, verses 7 to 13. His physical sufferings are described in verses 14 to 18. His prayer for resurrection is recorded in verses 19 to 21, and his thanksgiving for answering that prayer is recorded in verses 22 to 31. That's Psalm 22, that messianic psalm. It's all about the sufferings of Christ. It's all about the, the, the prayer for resurrection and then the answer and the thanksgiving that flows from it. And it says here, God heard him. Why did he hear him? In that he feared. It wasn't the word phobos from which we get phobia. It's not that type of fear. It's not that he was scared and panicky about death approaching, but rather he feared in that he devoutly submitted himself to God in reverence. He recognised God's sovereignty. He commits himself to God and therefore is fully qualified as he enters into the most extreme circumstance that you can imagine. What is he doing? He's demonstrating true manhood. He's experiencing the weight of it. He's responding to that with his crying and his tears. He's appealing to God and he is appealing to the God that he submits to and reverences. He's fully qualified. Chapter 5, verse 8, notice it says this. Though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, last gem again, there's no definite article here. Not though he were a son, but though he were son by character. So the absence of the article emphasises the the quality or character. The translation sometimes reads, though he was son by nature. It's his deity in view here. Remember this, that the one who's true man is also truly God. He is the son of God. And though he's the son, though that's his essential character, his experience here upon earth meant this, that he learned obedience. Because as the son of God, he had never experienced that before in all of eternity. Never. The omniscient God knew what obedience was, but did not experience it in this way until he became incarnate in human flesh. Well, listen, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. You see, before incarnation, this type of submission, this type of being a servant, remember this, this humbling of himself was not true. Eternally. Remember this, that he made himself of no reputation when he came here. Paul writes to the Philippians. So there was experiences, although known in terms of that type of knowledge, but not experiential knowledge. But now in incarnation he becomes obedient as a true man. Vincent writes this, he required the special discipline of severe human experience in order to function as our high priest so that he could be touched with the feeling of human infirmities. He does not need to be disciplined out of any inclination to disobey, but as Alfred puts it, the special course of submission by which he became perfected as our high priest was gone through in time and was a matter of acquirement and practice. That's eloquently put. So he'd actually to go through it himself. 
so that he could minister as our high priest. In verse number 9 it says this, and being made perfect. So that flows out of the previous verse, which was though you were a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. What does that word perfect mean? Well, a dictionary definition is the bringing of a person to the goal fixed by God. So you bring to a conclusion, a completion. So what is brought to a conclusion? In what way was there something completed in Christ as a result of his sufferings and the obedience that he learned through it, practically? The word here, one writer said, speaks of Messiah having reached the end which was contemplated in his necessary experiences to function as our high priest. He experienced it all, came to a completion. The consummation was in his substitutionary death and glorious resurrection. So that now he is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. So here's obedience. So he is the author, that in which the cause of anything resides. The Messiah in his death on the cross is the cause of our salvation. His death is that from which our salvation proceeds. And those of us who trust them are characterised by this, we obey him. The characteristic of those who are believers. We don't become believers simply by obedience but rather obedience characterises those who repent and exercise faith. So we are now children of obedience rather than children of disobedience. So let's even just summarise this and let's see who we've got and that's me done. So when you come to this, the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, is in heaven. We can't see him. He's there right now. And if we're a Christian, he is there ministering, serving on our behalf. When you're asleep, when you're awake, when you care, when you don't care. His care is constant. His vigilance is constant. He never tires of you or me. He never lets the, he never drops the ball. He's never looking some he's never looking the wrong way. He is absolutely on point all the time for you and for me. Not as some disinterested, steely being that can't relate to what I'm going through, but as a true man that lived here and actually has gone through what you're going through, multiplied by almost an infinite number. So he gets it, he knows, he knows exactly, he's been here, he knows what pressure is, he knows what it is to cry, he knows what it is to feel hurt, he knows what it is for all of these experiences that cause us sometimes, maybe not enough, to bow our knees and pray to God for help. Help is on hand. And he wants to pour into our life the necessary, remember we spoke about this, mercy and grace. Remember he wants to hold you together when the pressure's on and your life feels it's falling apart, your head feels it's about to explode. Remember, he wants to hold, and he's able to pour his grace into you at the throne of grace. 
It will bind you, hold you, help you. And he knows before you ask exactly what you're talking about. You don't need to, you don't need to pray. Sometimes I find myself in prayer giving the Lord a huge explanation of what's going on. But he knows exactly what it's all about. And here we have this beautiful qualification of Christ to function in this way, in his priestly ministry on our behalf. So beautiful things about the Lord Jesus and things that we can think about in this immediate context and things that we can take out of this context and actually worship him for. Think about him in the garden of Gethsemane. Think about his anguish. Think about the fact that he submitted himself the will of his father he went through what God wanted him to go through he didn't pull out and didn't stop so take these things and we trust it might be a blessing to us and let's just pray